Welcome to the Loved Called Gifted podcast. This is your place to come for musings about spirituality, identity and purpose. I'm your host, Catherine Cowell. talk to people about their life purpose, their calling and how they discovered that. There are some people who can pinpoint a particular moment where they had a real internal sense or a sense that God was speaking to them and had called them to a particular thing. For most of us, understanding our calling is more like putting together a jigsaw puzzle There are lots of clues, lots of bits of evidence in our lives and within us that will help us to understand how we are best suited to contribute to the world and what our calling is, if you like. So a number of years ago, Sean Kennedy and I put together a course called Loved Called Gifted, and that helps people to understand what their life calling is. And that's available online. If you're interested, you can have a look at lovedcalledgifted.com. In this episode, we are going to have a look at one of those puzzle pieces, if you like. And this may be really helpful to you in thinking about what it is that you are called to do. So one of the things that we get people to do when they come on the course is to list all of the things that they do, to list them under the categories of this is something that gives me life, this is something which I kind of feel neutral about, and these are things which leave me feeling drained and exhausted. Not in a kind of I've worked hard and that was really satisfying sort of way, but in that kind of soul-destroying, oh my goodness, that sapped the life out of me. The reason that this is helpful is that we have a tendency to go a little bit onto autopilot. There are some things which we simply have to do and so we kind of get on with doing them. We don't necessarily notice what the impact of those things are on our energy levels. So actually taking a bit of time to imagine yourself doing something and then imagine how that thing makes you feel can be really helpful. We can be incredibly good at having as part of our routine activities that we have done for potentially quite a long time because we have felt that we should. It might be that we started off with great motives and a great amount of enthusiasm, but then as time has gone by, we've continued with them, not because they are particularly motivating to us, but because there is an obligation associated with them, either because we feel faithful to them because we've been doing them for so long or because we really think we ought to. So an example of this for me would be that quite a number of years ago now, I offered to help out with a kids club at the church that I was going to. And I had a particular interest in engaging with the mums and the dads who came to take their kids. I thought that potentially there would be an opportunity to share something of faith with them. Maybe they would be interested. Maybe there would be a way of engaging. And so I spoke to the person who ran the kids club who said, well, if you want to do that, then the thing that you need to do is to take the money from the kids at the beginning of the evening. And that way you'll get to meet all the other parents and you can make the squash in the middle of the evening. And so I began to do that. And in actual fact, it wasn't a way of doing the thing which I thought it might be. I had had a great plan, but that wasn't coming to pass. But when that became evident, I didn't stop. I continued for actually a number of years to sit at the front of the kids club, taking the register and meeting the parents and meeting the kids as they came in. And I sort of didn't mind doing it, but it absolutely wasn't motivating for me. It was quite draining. I would come away from the evening feeling tired. It was a task which I had endured rather than enjoyed. 
And there were lots of other people who could have taken the money. My original reason for doing it didn't really work out. But I had a sense of obligation. Once I had committed myself to doing that, I kept going and kept going and kept going. And it took me a really long time to take a step back from that and realise that this wasn't something that I actually wanted to do. But I had lots of good motives for continuing. I thought that the person who was running the kids club was great. She was a friend and I really wanted to support her in her ministry because I could see how passionate she was about it. But this was basically an admin task and I'm not great at admin tasks. There was quite a bit of paperwork involved and I'm not great at paperwork. I find it a bit soul destroying if I'm honest. But that's an example which I'm sharing because it's one of those situations where you end up carrying on with something and not really noticing the impact that it's having on you. So one of the reasons for thinking about this today is to give you permission really to step back from the things that you're doing and to think about what is it that actually gives you life? What are the things that you love and enjoy? What are the things which you are still able to get up and do even when you've got a horrible cold? What are the things that you are prepared to stay up late for or get up early to do? What is it that you're doing when you realise that you're operating absolutely at your best? What are the tasks that bring your best self out of you? So it's worth thinking about these things because it helps us to understand something of what our core purpose might be. What I'd like to do is to have a bit of a think about what the science, the psychology of motivation tells us. Because again, that gives you a lens through which to look at what it is that really switches you on. And actually, the thing that you are called to do will be tapping into something intrinsic within yourself. It will be calling out of you something about your unique self and how your unique self connects with the world and helps you to offer something good. So motivation. And I will provide a link at the end to some stuff by somebody called Daniel Pink, who has done a really good kind of summary of motivational research over the last 50 years or so. And there are a couple of really good talks on YouTube where he expresses some of this stuff really well. So we can divide motivation into three levels, really. There are bodily needs. There are things which we are motivated to do because we have a bodily need for them, such as air, food, water, warmth, shelter. So if you're feeling chilly, you will be very motivated to find yourself a cardigan or to turn the heating on. In fact, your search for a cardigan might be quite enthusiastic. But once you've found it and you've met that bodily need, then that level of motivation goes away. So a couple of hours ago, I needed breakfast and I was really motivated to cook some bacon for breakfast. My level of motivation now for cooking bacon is absolutely zero. So once you've met a bodily need, the motivation disappears. Then there is extrinsic motivation and intrinsic motivation. And the thing which will help us to understand our purpose and our calling is all connected with intrinsic motivation. So intrinsic motivation, as its name suggests, comes from within us. It's intrinsic to us. Extrinsic motivation comes from outside and it's often extrinsic motivation that gets us hooked into doing something that doesn't necessarily suit us very well. It's the thing to do with sort of duties and obligations and societal conditioning. So we're going to have a look at extrinsic motivation just to help you to understand that a bit and then we will think a bit about intrinsic motivation and then we'll go back to thinking about how we can use these things to help us to understand our purpose and our calling our unique offering to the world. 
So extrinsic motivation is so-called because it's imposed upon us from outside. It's not coming from within us. It's coming from other people who are setting the agenda. So at its most basic level, extrinsic motivation is the way in which we try and persuade our children to do the things that we think are socially acceptable and that we would rather like them to do. It's punishment for things that we don't want and reward for things that we do want. It's where naughty steps and reward charts come from. So that's the basis of extrinsic motivation. You're going to reward the thing that you want. And what you're hoping is that the more external reward you give, the better performance you will get. It turns out that that works reasonably well under certain specific conditions. And in some ways, it kind of goes along with the bodily motivation thing in that you can get people to work for a wage in situations that are not great if they know that by doing so, they are going to be able to provide themselves and their family with their basic needs. So food and water and shelter, all those sorts of things. If you know that by going and doing something pretty grim, you can make sure that you and your family are not going to starve and that you're going to have a roof over your head, then that's a really good motivation. It also works a bit if you are getting people to do things which are simply mechanical, that don't require a lot of thought. So if you want handles sticking on cups, then a financial reward for every handle stuck on a cup to the person who's doing it for you is likely to be reasonably effective. And if somebody knows that they can get more money by sticking more handles on more cups, then it is quite likely that they will do it and they will work to get quicker and more effective at it. And that was the basis of the old piecework system, which isn't really in play anymore very much, I don't think. Where the extrinsic motivation, it turns out, breaks down completely is the moment that you're expecting somebody to engage their brain and their creativity. The moment you do that, it seems that this kind of carrot and stick reward just breaks down. There have been quite a number of studies that have shown that if you give somebody a creative task to do, then it's their intrinsic motivation and their sense of reward and achievement at having done it that is going to make the most difference. And interestingly, providing larger extrinsic rewards can actually cause performance to dive rather than improve. So there was a study done a number of years ago, and Dan Pink references this in his book Drive, where a group of artists were given the opportunity to paint some paintings, and they were divided into two groups. The first group was offered a paid commission for producing the art. The second group was simply offered an opportunity to produce the art. It was just a chance to do it and there was no extrinsic reward for that. But there was the opportunity to express their creativity and honour from having done the pictures. When these works of art were assessed by external assessors who did not know who had done which picture, consistently the people who were not paid produced better art than the ones who were. And that seems somewhat perverse. But it turns out that once you've got to the point where money is not really an object which is going to get in the way of everyday life, once you've done that bit, then actually offering more financial reward doesn't help. In fact, some research suggests that the bigger the reward you offer under those circumstances, the worse the performance gets. This is completely counterintuitive. It certainly calls into question the frequent assertions that you sometimes hear that heads of industry must be paid obscene amounts of money to secure their talents and that bankers need ridiculous bonuses to ensure their performance. The evidence suggests that this isn't really true. So extrinsic motivation 
is a bit flawed. The whole kind of carrot and stick thing is not really what's going to keep us going. Actually, if people are honest, sometimes there is a social pressure to push for promotions. And sometimes actually that will move us out of a role which is fulfilling into one which is less fulfilling because we think that the incentive of getting better pay and promotion, all those extrinsic rewards is worth going for. And sometimes actually it really isn't. Now, extrinsic motivation isn't always quite as crude as being directly about reward and punishment. Often it's a lot more subtle than that. And certainly my example of continuing to take the register at the kids club comes into this second category, which is all about taking on board the values, the rules, the expectations of the people around us and the social groups and the cultures that we're part of. There are things that we do in order to fit in because we are social creatures. And to some extent, it is true that there would be chaos if we didn't conform to a degree. But I think it's really important to understand why we are doing what we're doing so that we don't end up stuck doing things that really don't suit us for reasons that we've not really examined. This kind of social cultural level of extrinsic motivation is the thing that happens not because someone is standing over us demanding that we do what is expected, There is an element of choice, but essentially the motivation is coming from outside rather than from within. So one of the ways that you see extrinsic motivation working is when people end up swallowing the rules and the expectations of a group that they are part of without analysing or questioning them at all. So just a personal example, when I was in my teens, I attended a church that had got really quite a strong hierarchical structure. I was a bit of an outsider in that everyone else who was a member of the youth group that I attended had grown up within the church. They'd attended a church-run school and there were quite a lot of rules that by and large the young people complied with. Girls dressed modestly and wore hats in church. No one listened to pop music, which when I look back seems astounding. And on one occasion, I said in the context of a group meeting that I quite fancied celebrating my birthday with a barn dance. And that was followed by a shocked silence. And then one of the girls said, we don't agree with barn dances. I said, why don't you agree with barn dances? Deathly silence. In actual fact, nobody had any idea why they didn't agree with barn dances. What they knew was that barn dances were taboo and shouldn't happen. I can't imagine what dangers it was regarded would be entailed in barn dancing. There are a lot of people who would regard barn dances as a bad idea for reasons of taste rather than religious morals. But my point is that that was a rule, one of many rules, in fact, that had been sort of culturally absorbed by people without much examination. And actually, quite a lot of the big societal changes that there have been have been because people have taken a step back and realised that cultural rules which have influenced our behaviour actually have not been that good. What often happens with extrinsic motivation is that as time goes by, we take on board rules and expectations and sort of make them our own. So they become semi-intrinsic, but their source is sort of still from outside. And of course, it could be argued that when those extrinsic motivators are pushing us towards a healthier lifestyle, eating more fruit and vegetables, being kinder to the planet, all of those sorts of things, then they are good. But they are still not going to be the things which set our hearts on fire. But my reason for spending a bit of time thinking in a little bit of depth about extrinsic motivation is because understanding this stuff, I think, helps us to take a look at what we do and why we do it and where our motivation is coming from. And understanding that inevitably gives us choices that we otherwise might not have. 
Things that you do because you believe it's your duty to do them, because you are obliged, because you think you ought to, because you think you must, or because you think you should. So you could say the duties, obligations, oughts, musts and shoulds, or dooms. All of those things will be coming from external motivation. Some of those things will be important that you will wish to continue to do. But actually, if, for example, you are making a contribution to a charity or a church because you are feeling obliged to and because you feel that it's your duty, well, it may well be that you would make a better contribution if you were to step back from doing the thing that you think you have a duty to do or that you ought to do. And you began to think about what it would look like if you were doing the thing that you really wanted to do. The thing that you want to do, you're likely to offer with much more joy and enthusiasm and energy, and it will express things about who you are in a way that things that are extrinsically motivated never will. Dutiful, extrinsically motivated actions will keep the show on the road, but it isn't going to set the world on fire. For that, we need something different altogether. We really need to look at intrinsic motivation, the motivation that comes from within. So what is intrinsic motivation? Well, one answer is simply to say that it's that intangible something that fires people up, that gives them passion and energy. We know that we've got it when we find that we get joyfully lost in something, when we discover that hours have passed without our really noticing. We're intrinsically motivated when we work really hard and come away feeling energised and enthused. We've hit the motivational jackpot when there are five elements in place. Passion, purpose, mastery, autonomy and community. And we're going to have a think about each of those in turn. So passion. There is something a little bit indefinable about passion, but we know when we've got it. Passion is when you're doing something simply for the love of it. I once met an AA man who spent a lot of time talking to me about his passion for car mechanics. We got a lot of time to talk because he had to tow my car quite a number of miles. And I asked him about his work and whether he enjoyed it and why he continued to do it. And he spoke with such passion and enthusiasm about his joy of fixing all things mechanical. He told me that the first thing he'd ever fixed was a petrol lawnmower that he'd acquired from a science teacher who lived at the other side of the town that he was in. He had walked for miles trundling this old broken down petrol lawnmower back home so that he could then spend hours making it work again. That was a lot of work to put in and quite what a teenage boy wanted with a petrol lawnmower, goodness knows. But in actual fact, probably he didn't want anything particularly with the petrol lawnmower. It was just the opportunity to spend time fixing it. And that had carried on that passion for mending and fixing things into the career that he was in when I met him. And at one point, he talked about a job he'd had in the garage, which he'd really enjoyed. And then that garage had been taken over by new people who made a number of changes. They they changed pay and conditions. They took away a canteen. But none of those things, he said, bothered him. What really bothered him was when they removed from people the opportunity to use the garage and the tools outside of work for their own projects. This is a really good example of the difference between intrinsic and extrinsic motivation. The extrinsic motivators of having a good canteen and having good pay and good working conditions were not the things that were the deal breaker for him. What the deal breaker was, was when they interrupted his ability to do more of what he was passionate about. And so obviously working for the AA is something that enabled him to fulfil his life purpose and something that he was passionate about. And I felt incredibly privileged to meet him, actually. I'm very pleased that this was the AA man who was sorting out me and my car. 
because he was doing something that he was passionate about. And there are people who are passionate about all sorts of things which might not float our boat at all. What brings joy to one person might leave somebody else completely cold. But we know passion when we see it. And so thinking about what it is that you actually enjoy, that you love, that you care about, is a really big clue to what's going to motivate you. The second ingredient of intrinsic motivation is purpose. Loving something is great, but if it has a deeper meaning, a greater purpose, then that is a really big motivator. We love to be doing something that we understand has meaning. And actually, you might be beginning to think about this as being grand and worthy and unattainable. But if you take a step back and you look deeply at what it is that you're doing, purpose can be found in many things which might not be regarded as great and worthy. In one of my more recent podcast interviews, I talked to Alana, who's a hairdresser and who loves what she does. And she talks with great passion about how what she does is meaningful. And she looks at that quite broadly in terms of the meaning behind her work. And I would really recommend that you have a listen to that podcast if you haven't already. She's not the first hairdresser I've met who has seen purpose and meaning in what they do. When I was a student in Sheffield, I occasionally visited a hair salon called Hair by Christmas. And that was run by a guy called Andy. And it was called Hair by Christmas because he was really, really, really slow. It was a sort of an alternative kind of hairdressy place. And I went there a few times. I went once to have a 1980s perm done. Yes, I know. Um, well, it was actually, <laughs> it was an early 90s perm, in fact. But it took hours. But that actually meant that I spent quite a bit of time listening to him talking about what he did and why he did it. And one of the things that he said was that he loved being a hairdresser because people left his salon feeling better about themselves. I can remember a conversation with a caterer a number of years ago who did catering for United Christian Broadcasters. And I happened to have a conversation with her because the catering was particularly brilliant at an event that I attended. And I wanted to thank the person who was doing the catering. And when I got chatting to her, she talked about just how much she loved doing her job because, as she put it, I get to feed God's people. So actually feeding people, not only was she passionate about cookery, but she could see some purpose in that, that she was doing something beautiful for the world. So purpose is something which is motivating to us. And actually, we all want to be doing something which has a broad purpose that has deep meaning to it. And I think that the deepest sense of purpose comes from a combination of two things. Firstly, it reflects something about love in the world. It reflects something of the character of our divine creator and what the divine creator is doing in the world. When you think about it, people generally find meaning in things that reflect something of God's character, of love, justice, compassion, creativity, of a regard for creation and the world and the cosmos, and that are about helping people to live more fulfilled and better lives that offer dignity to people and and to animals quite often. But something about showing love for creation and for people, usually those deeper senses of purpose come from that. And secondly, purpose comes from doing something which expresses something that is uniquely us, something that we are created to do. In Chariots of Fire, Eric Liddell, the famous runner who actually went on to become a missionary in China, he said, God made me fast and I feel his pleasure when I run. And I think he says that in the film, he's portrayed as saying that to his sister when she's kind of questioning why he's doing the running. 
But having that combination of something which expresses something that is uniquely us and which links into that kind of sense of divine purpose gives us a real sense of meaning and purpose. We've talked about passion. We've talked about purpose. Motivation also happens when you can get mastery. And mastery is the ability and the desire to get better at something. As human beings, we're sort of driven to develop mastery. We want to be good at what we do. And being good at something does give you a real buzz, doesn't it? It's that sense of fulfilling your potential. And to develop mastery, that generally means we need a certain amount of innate ability or potential in the first place. It is really difficult to find the motivation to work at something if you're fundamentally unsuited to doing it. So my ballet career was never going to take off. <laughs> Neither was my career at um, badminton or basketball, because I just do not. I do not have an innate predisposition to be good at any of those things. But when we do have an innate ability and we are able to get good at something, then that can give us a certain level of motivation that we might not otherwise have. I remember, interestingly, listening to someone who's gone on to become quite famous as a mathematician. And actually, the ability to develop mastery was a real motivator and driver for her that has actually led her to go on and do maths at a higher level. And she said that the thing which made the difference for her, in fact, was that one summer her mother gave her some books. They were maths books that were all about the stuff that she was going to learn the following year in her lessons at school. And because she ended up spending quite a lot of time over the summer working at these things, what that meant was that when she got back to school, she'd sort of got a head start on everybody else. And so that meant that she was able to be masterful at maths in a way that she hadn't been able to be the previous academic year. And that sense of mastery, of achievement, of being good at something enabled her to gain a sense of motivation around it. And I'm sure that that wasn't the only component, but I think it's really interesting that it was the mastery that gave her the hook into some of the other elements of motivation that, that meant that she actually went on to become a mathematician. Now, I suspect that if there wasn't also something in maths that was going to help her to be passionate about it, that might not have made the difference long term. But it was the mastery that got her on the way. And that's the thing which means that people will spend a lot of time working and practicing something if they have an innate ability and they can develop that mastery. So that's why musicians will spend hours practicing because they are continuing to develop mastery. And mastery is something which is always sort of around the corner. Sadly, quite a lot of people end up being encouraged not to develop mastery at the things which they have potentially some ability at. But often what happens is that we are pushed to get better at things which we're inherently bad at. So, you know, you go for the annual appraisal and quite often the push at work is to say, well, you need to get better at this because you're not very good at it. Whereas in actual fact, if we are going to find our sweet spot in life, often what we need to do is to find workarounds and ways of managing the things that we're not so good at and actually put the time into stuff that we do have an innate ability for, because that's where the payoff is going to be. Which does make me worry about the amount of time we sometimes spend trying to get young people to get good at, for example, reading and writing and arithmetic at school and how much emphasis there is on developing those particular skills when somebody might not be very good at them. And actually, it would be better to encourage people to get to a point where they can kind of cope in life with those things, but then allow them to spend their time developing things which they do have an ability for. 
I remember years ago going to a parents' evening and one of my sons has lots, I mean, he has lots of things he's really good at um, and I can see huge potential. But actually the core academic things about getting good at, well, it was handwriting, writing things down. And actually we live in a society where writing things down in that way is <laughs> is not nearly as needed as it was maybe 20 years ago. But I spent time with his teacher who was really talking quite a lot about his inability to write things down. And so I asked the question, well, you're telling me what he's not good at. So what is he good at? And she looked like a rabbit caught in the headlights because she couldn't think of anything. She couldn't think of anything that he was actually good at, whereas I knew that there were lots of things that he was good at. But it really interested me that in that context, it wasn't something that was seen. And so instead of being given the opportunity to develop his innate talents and skills, he was being pushed to spend a lot of time working at something that he wasn't good at. And fortunately, time goes on and actually he's got some more ability to um, to head in a direction that I think where he is being able to develop his innate skills. And that's really good to see. When you do find your thing and you can develop mastery and you can work at the stuff which you're good at, then that enables you to develop those skills and those strengths in a way that will enable you to contribute to the world with more and more skill and expertise. And that's great. So we've talked about passion. We've talked about purpose. We've talked about mastery. The fourth thing on my list is autonomy. So in order to be intrinsically motivated, we need space to pursue the things that we want to do in a way that suits us. So we need to be able to put our stamp on something. We need to be able to do things in a way that uniquely expresses who we are. In other words, we want freedom. When things are overly controlled, that leads to kind of unthinking compliance or it leads to rebellion. Autonomy leads to engagement. So autonomy trusts people to do a good job and to make their own decisions. It allows for mistakes and encourages people to experiment, take risks and find their own unique way forward. And let's face it, none of us likes to be micromanaged. We all know what happens to our productivity when there's a teacher or a supervisor or a manager looking over our shoulder and wanting to control what we're doing. So passion, purpose, mastery, autonomy, and then the final part of the puzzle in terms of finding things which are intrinsically motivating is actually other people. Lots of studies have shown that while some people can be pretty self-motivated, most of us are much more likely to stay motivated and inspired if we are supported and encouraged by other people, if we are working together, if there is somehow a sense of community, if there are people around us who are acknowledging and valuing our efforts. So whilst the best motivation comes from within, to make the most of that inner motivation, we really need a supportive community. And that might be about your family or the team that you work with or your colleagues. But having people around us who care about us and who cheer us on and having people that we can care about and cheer on makes a big difference. We're not creatures designed to work in isolation. We are designed to work together. So finding your team mates, finding people you can work with will make a big difference to your level of motivation. So we started this episode thinking about what are the things which give you life. And I think if you were to look at the things which give you life, you will find that they have those elements within them of intrinsic motivation. So were you to look at all the things that you do and to think about 
how you feel when you're doing them and where your passion and your motivation comes from. Probably you will find that the things where you are most intrinsically motivated, the things which give you the most life, the things which draw out of you your best contribution will be those things which kind of key into those elements of intrinsic motivation. And finding purpose is often not about one moment of discovering what it is that we are called to do. And those things which sound like one moment are never actually one moment, I think. Often it's about kind of refining what's going on for you. I think that finding our purpose in life is often about gradually moving towards those things which are most an expression of who we are. So gradually moving away from the things which don't give us life, where we're not expressing our best selves and having more and more in our lives of the things which we're doing because they are about who we are. They are about the core of our being and they connect with that stuff which intrinsically motivates us because it's about us expressing most clearly who we are. And so what it might be for you at this moment is that there is a challenge around thinking about what is the stuff that you're doing in your life and how much of that is really expressing who you are, how much of that leaves you feeling motivated and full of life and what are the things in your life that you're doing that actually leave you feeling a bit grim and a bit drained. And if you can be really honest about that, then the challenge might be to say, well, how can you move the balance? And that's both about doing more of the stuff that you love, but also about having the courage to say no to some of the things that you're doing that are not really expressing who you are. And I'm thinking back now to some sessions of life coaching that I did with somebody a number of years ago. And she was someone who was really active in a local church and she was doing lots and lots of different roles. So what we did was that we wrote down all of those things on post-it notes, all of the things that she did. When she looked honestly at most of the roles that she had within her church situation and within her community, most of those were things that she was doing because she'd wanted to help out. There weren't many things on her list that actually gave her life. There were some, but not many. And so what we spent some time doing was honestly evaluating how much those were things which were definitely stuff that she could do, bringing her best self and that gave her life, and which things she was doing because she thought she ought to out of a sense of duty. And then she made some really brave decisions, having worked out which of the things that she did were things that were not really giving her life. And I think there were five or six of those. And then we thought about, well, how could you hand those on to other people who would really like to do them? And how many of those things actually need doing at all? Because quite often, the stuff that we're doing, we've been doing for years because it was really helpful to people at one point. But actually, now, if we're honest, the world wouldn't end if we stopped. And so she spent some time thinking about how she was going to hand those things over. And she made a bit of a plan. And over a period of months, what happened was that she gradually put down the things that she wasn't inspired by, that didn't give her life, that were draining. And that meant that she could then begin to pick up more of the stuff that did give her life and that was intrinsically motivating to her. The result was that some other people were able to do some things that she gave up and they really wanted to do them and they were things that were giving them some fulfilment. She was able to drop a couple of things that actually weren't really serving much of a purpose, but she was able to do more of the stuff that gave her life. And that meant that she was doing it with more energy and more enthusiasm and actually offering more to the world. Because the truth is that there is always, when we are looking at how we're going to spend our time, what the economists would refer to as an opportunity cost. In other words, doing one thing costs you the opportunity to do something else. 
And so if this episode has given you pause for thought and it feels like it's connecting with something that's going on for you in your life, then I would encourage you to spend some time, maybe with a good friend or maybe prayerfully thinking about what are the things that I spend my time doing and how can I shift the balance away from the stuff which is draining me towards the things which give me motivation and life. And I hope that that will be helpful to you. I will put a link in the show notes to some of the Dan Pink stuff around motivation if you want to have a look at that. And it may be that if this has really been meaningful to you, that it would be worth you having a look on the website at the Loved Called Gifted course, which would give you some of the other puzzle pieces around discovering your life purpose. Hope you enjoyed this episode of the Loved Called Gifted podcast. If you'd like to get in touch, you can email lovedcalledgifted at gmail.com You can find a transcript of this podcast at lovedcalledgifted.com and that's also the place to go if you're interested in the Loved Called Gifted course or if you'd like to find out about spiritual direction or coaching. Thank you for listening.